it's comforting, I think, being able to connect to your people and everyone else's through the stories that we tell. Hello, and welcome to The Common Room, a series of conversations between members of the English department at Yale. I'm Alana Hickey, assistant professor of English here at Yale. Today, we're talking to Luta Fastdog and Anna Smith, two senior English majors whose research takes up exciting questions in the field of Native American and indigenous literatures. Luta Fastdog is a member of the Rosebud Sioux Tribe from the Rosebud Reservation in South Dakota. A student in Ezra Stiles College, Luta currently serves as head peer liaison for Native first-year students at Yale. She's also involved in Indigenous language initiatives here. You can follow her Lakota language project, where she shares a Lakota word in its context every day on Twitter at her handle, at Lakota Words, words with a Z. Anna Smith is a member of the Second Box Nation, Deer Clan, from Oklahoma. She is a joint English and history of art major and a first-year counselor at Branford College. During her time at Yale, she's worked as a gallery guide offering tours of the Indigenous Arts Collections at the Yale University Art Gallery and as a curatorial intern at the Fred Jones Museum at the University of Oklahoma in 2019, Anna curated an exhibition titled Misunderstood, Indigenous Art and Poetics as Political Resistance. Hi, Luta. Hi, Anna. Thanks for being with me today. Glad to be here. So you're both in the middle of the difficult conceptual work involved in writing a senior thesis. Can you each tell me a bit about your project and how you came to it? Luta, do you want to go first? Sure. So my current thesis topic was born out of not being able to decide between two other topics. First, I was interested in how Native authors use kinship and extended family networks in their books versus the nuclear family we're used to seeing in white American literature. But I was also interested in how Native authors were writing about horror and the supernatural and looking into how non-Indigenous academia was making sense of it. So I just kind of smushed those two ideas together, hoping for the best. And so far, I've actually found there's a lot of intersection between the two out there if you're really looking for it. Can you say more about the intersection you're mapping in your project? Native fiction for me has always felt like it has a bit of truth to it. Storytelling is a huge part of the Indigenous experience, and there's always lessons or real-life experiences, places, people, and things that influence every story we have to tell. I think I'm getting at the familiarity of it. Like, I grew up hearing versions of this story or that story, or sometimes you hear another tribe's creation story and what spirits do what things for the people, and you're like, hey, that sounds a lot like ours. And it's comforting, I think, being able to connect to your people and everyone else's through the stories that we tell. Thanks for that, Luta. Anna, do you want to tell us about your project? Sure. So in the fall of 2019, I went with my friend Martha to go see the newest adaptation of Oklahoma the Musical in New York City. And while we were in a theater, we might as well have been in a football game or basketball game associated with the University of Oklahoma because of the amount of booster seats there and jerseys and hats that said OU on them. It reminded us both so much of home because both of us are from Oklahoma and the fact that Oklahomans were just so obvious and had all come together in this place so far away. Oklahoma, where the wind comes sweeping down the plain. And the musical itself is based off of a play by Cherokee playwright Lynn Riggs entitled Green Grow the Lilacs, which I am writing about in my thesis because I didn't realize until long after seeing the musical that 
this story came from a native playwright in the state, that history is very much obscured. And so it's definitely something that I've been thinking much more about because Lynn Riggs himself, even though he pretty much left the state as soon as he could, he continued to write about it and care about the state in his work throughout the rest of his life in several of his plays. And so that led his biographer, Phyllis Bronlick, to entitle his biography, Haunted by Home, and thinking about Oklahoma as a place that followed him wherever he went, whether he wanted it to or not. So that actually makes me think of Luda's project. While my author that I'm thinking about for my thesis was haunted by a place, I'm wondering if there's anything haunting the people in your text, Luda, maybe more broadly. So with the novels I'm looking at, at least the term haunting or supernatural or horror, whatever you want to call it, it doesn't really seem to cover everything. I guess a mainstream example I can give of the kind of intersection I'm writing about is what you see in the plot of Beloved by Toni Morrison. In that book, there's a ghost, there's a family, there's a ghost in the family, and there's all these profound ways that the story uses the intricacies of family and the supernatural to tell a horror story basically about the Black experience in America. And I think scary stories by non-white authors tend to break the mold a little bit because we have different fears and experiences to draw from. I'm trying to write about that difference because it feels like an important distinction to make. For instance, one of the novels I'm looking at is The Night Watchman by Louise Erdrich. And although there are ghosts and supernatural elements in the narrative termination policy by the U.S. government, based on real events, by the way, is the actual thing doing the haunting. A bill to abrogate nation-to-nation treaties, which had been made with American Indian nations for as long as the grass grows and the rivers flow. The announcement called for the eventual termination of all tribes including the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa. That's a great point. For the characters in The Night Watchmen, the threat of termination policy, which was designed to erase indigenous sovereignty and the rights inherent to Native tribes, this operates something like the afterlife of slavery that haunts in Morrison's novels. Each of your projects takes up questions of genre and reading practices within the incredibly diverse body of writing represented within the history of Native American and Indigenous literatures. Your conversation makes me reflect on Yale's institutional history as it intersects with that of Indigenous authors and intellectuals. It strikes me that Oklahoma the Musical's fantasy of a, quote, brand new state with plenty of air and plenty of room was dependent upon Yale alumni Henry Dawes's work to parcel out communally held territories into so-called allotments that declared unallotted lands as quote-unquote surplus available for purchase by non-native peoples. And while land acknowledgments on campus have made us more aware of the indigenous peoples and nations that have stewarded through generations the land that Yale currently occupies, including the Mohegan, Mashantuck Pequot, Scaticoke, the Quinnipiac, and other Algonquin-speaking peoples, too few are familiar with the legacy of Winnebago scholar and educational advocate Henry Rowcloud, who in 1910 became Yale's first Native American graduate. In Yale, as I entered that institution, I didn't have any money. I entered it with only $60 in my pocket, and it required in those days something over $1,000 a year. I had the confidence that laboring with my hands, doing all sorts of jobs, that I could somehow make ends meet. And when I graduated, I was still $60 in debt, but having paid 
all the other expenses by my own labors. And spent his life advocating for Native communities and challenging federal assimilation programs in the aftermath of the Dawes Act. Nearly a century before Henry Rowcloud attended Yale, then president of the college, Timothy Dwight, helped to found an off-campus school for Indigenous youth in Cornwall which recruited approximately 100 young Indigenous men from around the world to be trained as translators, teachers, and missionaries, including important Cherokee leaders Elias Boudinot and John Ridge. Even before the 19th century, though, Mohegan minister and author Samson Ockham gave his famous sermon on the execution of Moses Paul, an Indigenous man charged with murder, right here on the New Haven Green in 1772. This is a long way of saying that Yale has its own complex history of place, one that suggests it hasn't always been an accommodating space for Native peoples and Native students. Which leads me to a question for you two. Both of you have spent a lot of your undergraduate careers invested in projects that would make Yale a better home to its Native students, including in your roles on the Student Advisory Committee for the first exhibition of Indigenous art at Yale. Before you go, I want to ask you to share a bit about your work in Indigenous languages, Luta, and in your curatorial practices, Anna. I wonder if there are possible connections between the work of your theses and these projects around Indigenous representation and experience at Yale. Yeah, so until very recently, the only place that you could go to see contemporary depictions of Native people was in contemporary Indigenous art at the Yale Native American Cultural Center, which was officially established in 2013. And it is still true that that is the only place on campus where people could go to see permanent displays of contemporary Indigenous art. A few years ago, Three graduates of Yale College, Catherine Nova McCleary, who's Little Shell Chippewa Cree, Leah Shrestinian, and Joseph Zordon, who's Bad River Ojibwe, curated the exhibition that you just mentioned. And it's important to acknowledge that that was completely student-driven and student-led and came out of activism by the Native community here at Yale. And while the Yale University Art Gallery had that exhibition open until the end of February of this year, it's really unclear where contemporary Indigenous art will fit into Yale's collections going forward. Luto, will you tell us a bit about your work in Indigenous languages at Yale? I recently spoke on a panel about Indigenous languages at Yale, more or less, because I'm a lifelong learner of Lakota. And I just started my Lakota words Twitter, kind of for my own personal vocabulary growth. But it also feels good to be helping educate other people along my journey to help educate myself, I guess. It's good that Yale is finally starting to recognize the linguistic needs of its Native students, but I feel like that wouldn't necessarily be the case if students like me weren't already just kind of teaching ourselves. And I guess that ties back to why I'm writing my thesis about something specific to the Indigenous experience. If it's something I care about and can help other people care about too, it just feels like a very natural next step. Finally, as you both look to your next steps and life after Yale, is there a memory that feels central to these years that you'd be willing to share with us? What of Yale are you going to take with you? I think when Cheyenne author Tommy Orne visited that was just really an incredible experience because he spoke at Davenport and the whole Native community came and then he came to the Native American Cultural Center with us afterwards and literally played a game where he tried to put whipped cream in his hand and then throw it to the roof. Being in a place where 
Native authors can be brought to this campus, that's been definitely some memories that I've really valued. I mean, the fact that we can all just bond over the community and the ways that we made Tommy do, for instance, I think that's really special. And I hope that that kind of continues even after me and Anna have graduated. I hope that they continue to bring these important Native voices to campus. Me too. Many thanks, Anna and Lucha, for sharing a bit of your exciting and necessary work with us today. And thanks for listening to The Common Room. Our producer is Robert Scaramuccia, class of 19, and our music is by Blue Dot Sessions. You also heard Oklahoma from Roger and Hammerstein's musical by the same name, based on the play Green Grow the Lilacs by Cherokee playwright Lynn Riggs, an excerpt from the audiobook The Night Watchman by Louise Erdrich, read by the author, and a clip from the film Standing in the Place of Fear, The Henry Rowe Cloud Legacy. Thank you.